Hello there, friends, and welcome to the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. My name is Nico. As usual, I'm joined by my co-host and really good friend, Sam Webster-Harris. You're officially a Webster now, right? Yeah, officially. It reduces the amount of wrong attribution to me, overfitting that I am the wrong Sam Harris. We're going to make some weird jokes during this because Sam and I just read a book called The Signal and the Noise, Why So Many Predictions Fail, But Some Don't written by Nate Silver. Brief quote to get us started. Predictions are difficult for us for the same reason that they are so important. It is where objective and subjective reality intersect. Distinguishing the signal and the noise requires both scientific knowledge and self-knowledge, the serenity to accept the things we can't predict, the courage to predict the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Maybe a bit of context on why we decided to read this book. As some of you might know, I work at a venture investing firm. We do early stage investments, mostly in the gaming space. And as part of that, me and the rest of the team have started a sort of content club where we read books, listen to podcasts, and then we get together on a weekly basis to just discuss, share ideas. And it just helps us to like talk through ideas, our thinking, and share a thesis that might make our lives easier moving forward when we are talking about deals. So we start sharing the same language. And so decision-making as an investor is really important. You don't do a lot of like actual work. Like there's not a lot of output, but you have to make good decisions. And for that reason, we decided to also read this book. So when we decided as a team to read this book, I was like, hey, Sam, why don't we read this book for the podcast as well? I think it's a good book and it makes my life easier so I can do a double whammy or two birds with one stone. So yeah, the book is all about good predictions, bad predictions, why some people are better than others and what kind of mental frameworks you can use to improve your decision-making and your prediction-making. Because in the end, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. The better you manage it, the more successful you can be in anything that you try and do. There's lots of good examples here within the book, but outside of whether you're deciding who to buy as your player for your sports team or what stocks you're picking, just what you want to do with your life, his kind of decisions, who you're going to spend time with. There's lots of big things that you maybe don't think about properly without thinking of something fun statistics behind it so we can dig into why you should be more of a statistician with how you live your life a good place to start i found was the movie moneyball and it's also a book i believe so the book moneyball talks about a baseball team that i think was like in the 70s or the 80s where the managers of the team michael lewis yeah where the managers of the team actually started to use statistic and data instead of like their subjective assessment of players. So instead of picking people that seem to be really good at home runs, a player that might be really good at home runs or that appears to be really good at home runs might like only score home runs and never scores like, man, I don't know, I don't even know the terms, but the scores a, a, like a, an average ball that allows him to move like two parts, things. We should probably move on for baseball. Anyway, bases, that's it. Baseball, I, sh I should have known that. So the point is that this team that decided to use a data first or statistics first approach versus a subjective like scouting approach managed to win the baseball league they managed to win using like theoretically subpar or what everyone perceived to be subpar players just because they focused on the data and the data said something else than what the scouting people felt was the subjective truth anyway the point the movie makes is that if you want to be good at predicting success or predicting in general there's data and you should use that data but then i would say that's Probably the first fundamental point that the book makes is that there's data out there and you can use that data to your advantage. But then obviously the title of the books, there is data that is signal and there's data that is noise. Signal is data that is relevant for the decision you want to make. And noise is data that seems to be related to the decision you want to make, but is actually doesn't have any impact. 
And so, for example, the length of the arms of a baseball player, of one that like swings, might seem to be related. As with longer arms, you have higher leverage and you can you can hit the ball harder. I'm just saying something, right? But this could be noise rather than signal. So they tried to pick up on like signals that really did sort of consistently match overall performance over your lifetime career of a player. And amongst the thousand players, if someone's absolutely had like amazing scores, that doesn't mean anything. Just because if you see a sudden pattern, other people would might jump on that and sort of try, try and invest in this player. But if you look at their entire career, if they actually sort of frequently don't do that well, but have like the odd match where they do okay, like they might not actually be that good on average. Then just happen to have like a lucky streak versus some fundamental difference in how well they're playing and how they're going to be playing for the rest of their life. And really extracting the noise from the true signals of what is going to be a good performer. But because we don't know baseball, we can't remember most of the examples of why they were talking about them. Let's move on from baseball. So the book talks about or like analyzes the way of working of different people in different areas. And so the book talks about predicting the weather. It talks about predicting like NBA basketball leagues. And so there are people who make pretty good money just betting on the outcome of NBA games. It talks about political predictions, so predicting who will be the next president or who will win the caucus. Don't ask me what caucus means because I'm European. I'm, I'm not American enough for that. So, you know, predicting weather, predicting earthquakes, predicting where the economy goes. And then, yeah, one of the interesting ones, and I'd love to spend a bit more time on this, is the game of poker. I've generally found that in a lot of these analytical situations, there tends to be like a game that, from first principles, tries to mimic the situation at hand. And so when it comes to making predictions under uncertainty, poker is probably the perfect game. Because a game of poker, the only information that you have is the cards that you have in your hand. And as the game gets played, you slowly receive more information and you have to update your own mental models. And you have to update what you think you know and what you don't really know. And you can quantify your certainty. And so depending on whether you are 95% sure if you will win a hand or you are 55% sure you will win a hand, you can all in or you can raise by a bit. And so it's super interesting that you can essentially start quantifying your certainty by betting less or more. And that's why I love to spend a bit more time on poker and more specifically how well it aligns with a concept that's called base theorem, which is the most important concept of the whole book and essentially what the whole book talks about. Yeah, well, I say that Bayes' theorem and then just the fact that we overfit lots of examples and we sort of predict things based on sort of other data that hasn't made allowances for new stuff. So they're kind of slightly opposing things, but they work together. But yeah, we, both of those, I think, great to go into. In poker, I was also especially interested. I don't know if you've heard of Annie Duke, but I had her on my podcast. She won stuff <laughs> for a while. She was the best female player. She wrote a few books using like decision-making and a lot of that has stories of poker because of that is all about like decision-making i listened to a podcast with her it wasn't your it wasn't mine it wasn't yours yeah my one with her was good her book's really good though as well actually i obviously read it after talking to her because i'm an idiot but i had some good principles in it and do we just carry on talking about poker do we go back and talk about the general concept of overfitting or do we go straight into Bayes' theorem decisions okay so let's first talk about Bayes' theorem how it applies to poker, and then we can talk about overfitting, and then you can maybe describe overfitting to us. I've got some text about what Bayes' theorem is, so I can go for that. It is named after 
Thomas Bayes, and it describes the probability of an event based on prior knowledge of conditions that might be related to that event. For example, the risk of developing like a health problem will be known to increase with age. And so Bayes' theorem allows for the risk upon an individual of a known age to be assessed more accurately by including their relative age during it. So it's not just like, okay, you took a test that has a 10% chance of being wrong, but also you're 80, so you're much more likely to actually be ill than if you're like 20 and no one ever has this illness normally. So it's not just like the single point of data. So an example is like for young ladies that will often get a breast cancer screening because they have a lump or something, but 10% of mammograms give a false positive. But actually, if you're a young lady and you get a mammogram, if you get a positive result, it's still statistically not that likely that you have cancer when you start using Bayes' theorem. But if you've just had a mammogram, you think, I've definitely got cancer and you're going to start getting lots of other checks and you might actually make your health worse by like overchecking and thinking of these things. So that's Bayes' theorem. Just to tap into that, one related point is I found that this book was very related to another book that we really liked, which is called Full by Randomness, written by our Lord and Savior, and the person that annoys me on Twitter, Nassim Taleb. And this book was actually written after, but I found them very aligned. These feel like two books that fit within the same category of thinking around probabilities and statistics. And so in that book, I think it was, Taleb also described a situation with a doctor where the doctor does a test that has a 10% chance of being a false positive. Let's take your example, right? Let's say that you're a woman and you take a test that checks if you have breast cancer and that test has a 10% chance of giving a false positive. If it gives you a positive, theoretically, Taleb described this problem in his book. I answered it in my head and I had it wrong. And I didn't understand until I read this book why I had it wrong. And so basically, like you already described it, Sam, but I'll do my best to try it again because I think it's really, really important. So Women that are younger than 40 have, let's say, a 5% chance of developing breast cancer. Let's say you're 30 and you take a test for breast cancer. The breast cancer test has a 10% chance of giving you a false positive. So a 10% chance of saying you have breast cancer while you don't have it. You take the test and it gives you a positive. The question then is, what is the chance of you having breast cancer? And... When I heard that in Taleb's book, because it's a very similar example, it doesn't talk about breast cancer, but just doctors and diseases. My initial answer was, well, if the test has a 10% false positive rate, then the chance of you having breast cancer are like 90%, right? Because there's only 10% chance that it's wrong. And so what you need to do according to Bayes' theorem is you need to take into account the prior chance. And this word prior is important because the, the prior is essentially like the, the starting probability that you attached to an event. And in this case, it's 5%. So because everyone that's less than, like younger than 40 has a 5% chance on, on having breast cancer. And so you need to take the 5% into account, combine that with the 10% false positive rate will mean that the chance of you having breast cancer are actually significantly lower than that 90% that test alone would tell you. And then also when you think about the fact, like if you're someone that gets an annual mammogram and 10% of them are false positives, that means over 10 years, you've got a more than 50% chance of getting a false positive. So like if you take it every year for 10 years, one of your tests is more likely to say that you have cancer than you actually have cancer, which is hard to think about because at the moment that you get the test, you think like, oh God, it's 90%. But actually over the statistics of like the 10 years, it's likely that you're just going to get a test that's wrong and tells you you have cancer. 
Exactly. And this brings us back to poker, right? And how poker is like the perfect way to train your mind in thinking in base terms or thinking Bayesian. So basically what happens is let's describe around and the book does this as well. And actually I enjoyed the book going through like a round of poker and thinking about like what you know and what you don't know. It did make me want to start playing poker. <laughs> I was like, this would be fun. <laughs> 100%. Let's say that you're a poker player. I'm assuming that you know the game Texas Hold'em. Everyone receives two cards. You do a first round of betting, then there's the flop, which is three cards. Then there's another round of betting. Then the fourth card gets revealed, another round of betting, fifth card gets revealed, and then there's the last round of betting. Yeah, and you never see your opponent's cards at this point, and anyone can drop out at any point, and you don't get to see their cards when they drop out. So you can assume that they have bad cards, but they might just want to be watching you for data. They might <laughs> not have enough money. They might have an expectation that someone else has really, really good cards. So there's lots of different things going on and the overall statistics of how good your hand is and how much data you have to go on it's cool and so the way this works is let's say you get cards and so there's a first round of betting without any cards being shown in the middle because everyone shares the cards in the middle and let's say you get cards and you have pretty decent cards let's say a pair of tens for example i don't even know if these are average i think they're probably above average yeah it's just a pair of anything when you start is always good it's, it's above 50% chance. So. Exactly. So it's already a reason to keep betting because there's always people that have to put money in the middle, but that brings us too deep into poker. But the interesting thing is that by definition, like there's an average hand, right? The moment you start a game of poker, you can assume that everyone has a average hand and an average hand could be an eight and a six, for example, right? As an average hand. But the moment someone starts betting in the first round, base theorem says that you need to update your priors. So the fact that they... Bets means that they probably have slightly better than average cards or they wouldn't be betting because they're taking monetary risk if they're betting. And so basically update the hands that they could have in your head by a bit. And so when the flop happens, there's three more cards. Depending on what your opponent does, you actually like keep updating your mental model of what kind of hands they could have. And based off your, on your prior knowledge of how they play, you essentially try to decide what the right course of action is for you. Because obviously in poker, you can bluff because there's a lot of hidden knowledge. And so during the book, it describes it in a really interesting ways. And as you said, Sam, it made me more interested in poker as a game because I do think that this skill and being able to really reason in the Bayesian way, because like in the end, we all do that without realizing it. Like we all have prior conceptions around things and then we tend to update them as they happen. Like when you meet someone for the first time, they're like a blank slate, but then depending on how they act, you kind of start creating a model about them. And then every time you see them, you start updating that model and, and you try to like find shortcuts in who they are and try to predict how they will react to certain things. The whole book made me more interested in generally writing down my predictions. So one of the reasons I like playing the stock market a bit is just to sort of remind myself that I really haven't put that much detail into like working out what a company's going to do next and just sort of going with my gut and just like proving myself that I'm an idiot on things and just kind of learning as it goes. And I remember, so we have a friend called Naeem and his parents run a shop. I just sat with him for a few hours and just watched different people walk in. I just tried to predict what they were going to buy based on like zero knowledge about them just to prove like <laughs> how little I knew about different people. I just found it really fascinating. But there's just so many things that you do as actions in your daily life that sort of are based on like different predictions that you don't realize you're making. And so just trying to write down what it is that you're thinking. Because obviously for a VC, you always write down why you're investing in a company and maybe also why you're not investing and trying to like track your prediction to get better. But there's so much more areas of this in life that you can do it. But poker is a really good game. You get lots of feedback and change and over time where you know that you're making predictions by what you're doing. So if you're more intentional with them, you learn faster. This seems to be a key in, in life in general. 
like the things that have the shortest time between feedback loops tend to like just win out. And so this is one of my problems with the job that I'm doing. I invest in early stage startups and I only know if that investment was a good investment after five to eight years. Yeah, you know, if it's a bad investment, maybe next month if it dies, but like most of them still takes like two years for it to become a bad investment. You have like a thesis that's operating right now, but like the thesis will be different in five years time, even if you hadn't got the feedback just because of other things in the market. And that's why I think a game like poker really helps you because you obviously get better at poker and you get better at understanding like the probabilities of deck of cards and what the odds are that someone has something. You increase in these more topic specific skills. And I think the real skill there is just understanding how your mind works and what you tend to overestimate or underestimate and getting reps in and getting more faster of these feedback loops, I think is a, is a great way to sharpen your thinking and will generally make you a better decision maker under uncertainty, which, you know, all of us are. So I think poker is a hobby. I played a bit of poker online for a bit, but not that much and never with real money. I played when I was on all rigs. There was like a regular game that I used to sort of go to which is quite fun. But when I was traveling, there was a few hostels that sometimes had them, which was nice to play those games. But I've never like gone to casinos and sort of entered the tables, but I should probably just go to like some low stake tables and things. So I have some friends that like do it as their full-time job and they will go like the odd month of just like losing money. But overall, if they're on it, it's like a nice just thing to do. But another thing from this book that I didn't really think about too much of like the importance of knowing who the suckers are at your table and just realizing that they are basically paying for all of your winnings. And if you don't know who they are, like you're probably the sucker. And ultimately there is going to be some tables where there are just some better players and some not so good players and understanding how good you are as well and playing against people that you can beat is much better than trying to just make money without really thinking about these things. One of the things that holds me back in attempting to do something in poker is the fact that it's a negative sum game. As you said, at a table, you can only win if the other people lose. And it's a negative sum game because the house always takes a, a small cut. And so if you have a table and let's say a thousand bucks get put in, I think 50 bucks maybe goes to the house and that might be too much. Maybe it's less, but there's only 950 bucks to be divided. And so you, you need to be the best player and the best player might go home with, you know, 600 bucks and then there's 350 bucks left and that gets distributed among player two and three and all the rest lose pretty much everything. And yeah, it's interesting how poker still has this super fast feedback loop, but the best poker players still can have bad months and even bad years. And so it's just incredible how difficult the game of prediction is or the concept of prediction is and how long it can take before you ultimately start seeing in objective and quantifiable terms whether a strategy is good or bad. I really liked this story about there was this guy that was relatively unknown that got into like a poker tournament championship and ended up going to win it. And then like afterwards, because of the commentators and everything, it ends up like lots of people started playing poker because they're like, oh, I can just play poker and kind of win because I'm going to be some kind of genius. And the issue with watching poker online of is that like you'll see the cards of all the different players and you'll already know what's the right thing to play that wins without thinking of the statistical right thing, given the knowledge of just that player. And like the pundits will be there being like, okay, well, statistically, nine out of 10 times he should bet, but right now he's going to lose if he bets. But because he's such a good player, he should know that he shouldn't bet. Oh, he's bet. He's such a terrible player. Well, obviously we're so much better than him because if we know that he shouldn't have played that hand, when the, that player is literally playing the best he can do with all the information he has. And yet he'll still get slated if he ends up losing money. And so you think you're better than the best player in the world, even though you're not, by watching it. I'm a big esports fan. 
I would say almost all esports have some kind of hidden information. So there's trading card games that I sometimes follow, not that much anymore. So you have your hand and your opponent has a hand. And if you know your opponent's hand, it's, it's easier to figure out what the right play is. But the problem is that in almost all esports, the observer and the audience, there's no hidden information. And so trying to learn from esports is actually like pretty hard because you base your decision making and you practice your mind on having all information while in reality that never really happens. And so it's all about getting the reps in and, and their incomplete information, which is the real situation. Test your decision-making, know when a move is right or wrong move and try to get reps in so you learn. Yeah, I guess that's the nice thing of like chess, I guess. There's no such thing as like a hand or the person. It's just like the position on the board. Like both of them has a bunch of different moves they could try and go for afterwards that will force what the other player will do to get to like the ultimate solution of check or not. But you don't have like the ego issue of thinking you know more than you do by seeing stuff <laughs> but yeah chess is also a good game for just working out like decision and tactics slightly different on the statistics of stuff but i think it's also another one to be this nice one to work on i've been playing a bit more chess lately and i quite like it i'm still terrible <laughs> better than than i am so yeah surprising you can be someone with a good iq and just know the rules but still be terrible at chess which is cool so overfitting that was our next subject so overfitting that's where you basically don't have enough data and you train your model on how things will work based on the data that you have so like the classic of like the turkey that gets fed every day when the person comes into the pen and they're like okay cool the person's coming into the pen today i'm definitely going to get fed but the fact that he doesn't have any food within him and he's wearing these big gloves i'm still going to get fed because he's come in and it's the morning this is, this is what always happens so your data doesn't allow for the fact that you're about to have your neck broken and you're going to get stuff and there's just lots of stuff where you just don't have enough data on that. So the same with like earthquakes. There's just never been earthquake over 8.0 on the Richter scale in Japan or something that was recorded. And so they're like, okay, well, that's not going to happen. But statistically, the way earthquakes happen is they've got this prediction model now where it's depending on, on the occurrence rate of earthquakes in a country and the level of them, you can work out like how much higher you could possibly get. So for every sort of 10 earthquakes of a level 6, you're going to get one earthquake of a level seven in a hundred years kind of thing or something like that. And working out that model, they worked out that like the biggest earthquake in Japan has still not yet happened and could still be higher. So every nuclear plant that's been built should be built to resist even higher than ever's happened yet so far. And that's data that hasn't yet happened, but you can work out. This is an illustration of some of the principles of Taleb as well in the Black Swan events that he talks about. When it comes to the global stock market during the global financial crisis, there was this subprime mortgage bubble. It was never seen before. And so because it was never seen before, people thought that, oh, but it can't burst because prices of housing always go up. And if they go down, they only go down by 20%. But then suddenly when they went down 50%, which was something that never happened before, so it was a black swan, then suddenly everyone surprised, got with their pants on fire, water goes away and we can see who's swimming naked and all the other ways in which we can tell who made the wrong decisions, who was in the wrong position or unprepared. But it's a really fascinating principle. And I keep having discussions around politics. I'll give you one example. Europe has pretty decent healthcare and education. And when I say decent, I would say, yes, probably from a quality perspective, but more specifically from a cost perspective. And so I have a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, Europe is superior because look at our education and look at our healthcare especially compared to the US. But one of the problems that I have with that statement is that it's pretty easy to say, but then if you look at the deficits that countries run, 
you'll see that generally European countries tend to run way more of a deficit. And so the, the government is borrowing more money to be able to do that thing. And so it's very easy to say that, oh, we have superior education and healthcare, but we've only been doing it this way for the past 50 years, which from a societal point of view is really short. And so there's not none of data. And so drawing conclusions around something that has been done in a certain way for half a century is probably not a great idea. And so that brings us to one of my favorite concepts, which is the concept of Lindy, right? The longer something complex has been done or has existed, the longer you can expect it to exist. And I would say that overfitting is a prime reason for that. Good point. Now I'm like, is Europe better? I don't know. <laughs> Confused. But also another way that you overfit is just where you get your data from. So as in the way the news works or like just for startups, you'll often hear big news about like, young entrepreneurs that make a billion dollar company and so if you see a startup and it's got some young entrepreneurs you're like oh yeah i'm on some hot startup but actually statistically most billion dollar companies are made by old founders and like these young people will probably fail <laughs> and they'll probably need to fail four or five times first before they'll do their billion dollar business so if you get into investing and you meet some like savvy young people it's statistically a worse bet than like some old people but because of like what's in the news you might be overfitting and think you've got like a real gem on your hands it's a good illustration of this, and obviously it's not a statistically correct illustration, but if you look at the Forbes 30 under 30, and you look at the amount of multi-billion dollar frauds over the past decade, let's say, there's, there's probably a fair correlation there. It does provide like a wind in their sails to then go and do it, I guess, because if it's just another correlating point of that there's some like young genius that just gets everything right. Because after my first business went well, I was like, oh, I know everything. <laughs> it took like the three failures to be like, I really don't know that much about business, do I? I'm an idiot. <laughs> That's probably like the, the core fundamental thesis of this book. It's that there's a shit ton we don't know, but we think we know. The really dangerous area is like, if you don't understand or know something and you accept that and you realize that, that's actually fine. That's a really good thing. But it becomes dangerous and your ability to make predictions becomes really, really bad when you think you know something, but you really don't. And so... The book really talks about understanding yourself, understanding your way of thinking and minimizing all of these types of mistakes. And so these mistakes happen because we as humans receive so many inputs. And I think through the internet, it's actually getting even worse. Like there's so much data that we know. If you scroll Twitter, there's a constant stream of information that you can draw conclusions from and that you can see as strong signals. We're born to be pattern recognizers. Our brains cannot handle that many inputs at the same time. And so we use heuristics to simplify them into generalized truths that we then use to reason. Also, we are born to like find data that like fits the things that we want to know about the world and like draw conclusions that we want. And, like you get like a dopamine hit from something that reaffirms your belief. And if you don't think you're wrong about something, then you read something that like proves you right, even though it's crap science. You're like, yeah, proven. I know what I'm doing and stuff. Or if you feel like you're like getting a bit distracted and not working very well lately, like there's lots of stuff out there that will prove to you that you've got like ADHD, even though you don't. Or if your partner's a bit of a dick, you can find out all the reasons that they're a complete narcissist and that you're a hero and that none of the problems are because of you. It's very easy to go and find this evidence that supports what you want to believe rather than like you finding out what's actually going on and solving your own problems for yourself, which is not helpful. And so... I would say that my final big takeaway from this book is something you mentioned earlier, and it is try to be more formal in your decision-making and decision-making process and try to state your priors. We've talked about Bayes' theorem, right? And Bayes' theorem says that 
there's a function of the probability of it happening before the new information came and then that new information. This is a loop that you keep updating. So you always have priors, but it's really important whenever you make in decisions is to state your priors to yourself, but also to people that are involved in decision-making. As an investor, whenever I believe we need to invest in a company and maybe an easy example is into a gaming studio. So a company that is building a game. If I like that genre, that is actually an important prior because I'm biased towards what I like, right? If I think that I'm going to like a game, then I'm going to think that the potential of that game and the potential of the market for that game is going to be higher than it actually is. And so these are important things to state beforehand. If you really like the founder, that's another one. If you like this person is, is a friend, maybe that's also an important prior that will probably impact your decision-making. And if you do that enough, you'll start realizing that, oh, if I really like a game or a gaming genre, I'll probably overstate the size of the market and the potential for this game by maybe 20%. And the more you do this, and the more you keep track of all this, because that's really important to keep track and really state them and do this in an analytical and process-oriented way, it will allow you to learn about yourself and be able to take your biases into account or just manage to avoid them. Nice. Do you feel like your company does a good job of this in terms of factoring in the bias properly? As in, I'm sure I mean, you're doing a good job of actually just stating why you've made investments and so you can review like in five years' time, but do you think they actually work out? Because obviously with friends and things, this, this actually can be handy if, you know, you just, that's the point of developing a network and contact is to be able to get into these deals early and like establish these relationships. So it's like a hard one to factor in properly because you only have a pool of people that you actually know that you can be investing in. So the overall question was, do you feel your company does a good job of actually working out the statistics based on their priors of the investments that they make besides just writing down what they're doing? Because they're like, have you written your priors down? Let's say you're writing your reason, your hypothesis for investing in a company, and then you're writing your priors about it. Have you written the priors down and gone like, actually, I'm no longer going to invest in this company because I've written down these things and I think I'm being an idiot, whereas in hindsight, I really like them. Have you ever changed your mind? I think that's probably has happened, but not in a very formal way. So as a process, there's already a lot of work that goes into deals. We also work together on things. And so we haven't made it into a habit to write down the priors. Like we've sometimes tried it, but we haven't really put it into the process. And also because the feedback loop is probably too long to be able to like really draw from that. And I think that's what you're talking about is probably like one of these things that every venture firm should strive towards to like be more analytical in their thinking. This is a constant struggle, I'm sure, in every type of investment fund. It's realizing what your priors are and trying to manage them in a way. Yeah, because I mean, I know we don't remember the exact specifics of the baseball, but as in, in the same way where they had like people whose job had been to like select people, but weren't always necessarily looking at the right sort of indicators. Do you think there's like a set of indicators that you could start putting together statistically of companies and that do work or not? And just being like, okay, this number of founders, this level of like background experience, this market size, et cetera, and like actually have a bit more of a overall probability matrix that would give you the 10% probability that you want for a billion dollar company or something as opposed to like a 1% probability. People have actually done that. They've done the research on the past, I would say like a thousand unicorns or something. And so the data from that was that nothing matters 
except for if a founder is a super founder. And the definition of a super founder is a founder that either has sold their company for more than $50 million or has grown a company to, I think, $20 million in revenue. It's it's something like that. It's along those lines. It's a much bigger correlation that the next one will also be. I would say much bigger, like significantly bigger. Um, at that point, it becomes Anyone relevant. would invest in Elon Musk's next business. Exactly. But that's the only one. So like founding team, it doesn't matter from a statistic point of view. And obviously this is generalized, but it doesn't matter whether you've already worked in the industry or not. Obviously, if you're trying to build a, a biopharmaceutical startup or whatever. And so like for us, one of the things that we default to is experience. Like building games is from a technical perspective, one of the hardest things there is. Like building a Facebook is so much easier than building a game. It blows my brain trying to work out like where you start with a game. And I'm like, can make a data table for like just the weapons that you have and stuff. But like this whole moving around thing and like what's what's going on? I would say making games is becoming easier in a way because of all of the tools that get developed, but it's still really, really hard. And so we tend to look for teams that have already managed to scale a game and bring a game from zero, like from the ideation phase to like live operating at scale. Those are the founders that we put on top and that we, like from a, you're building a game or studio perspective, tend to focus on. Cool. Interesting. Glad I asked. (laughs) Okay. Good rating. I think uh, rating fits well here. I feel like before we had this conversation, there would have been a six and now I'm like a seven. I've remembered things that I liked about it. I have read the other Philip Tetlock book, which is very similar, super forecasting and also Annie Duke's book, Thinking on Bets. So it wasn't quite so new, well, and also like Taleb, but there's still a few things that were like, okay, I've actually understood this better a lot more now that I've read this book. So yeah, I guess a seven. Good. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because I actually also increased my scoring on this book during our conversation. I would say it goes from a five to a six. I still think it's a good book. Now I feel like I have like a solid grasp of the base theorem, which is like, Probably the thing I'm, I'm most happy with because I can now fit it into my mental model of, of thinking and reasoning and predicting things. But probably could have been slightly shorter. There's a lot of things that they talked about, spent a lot of time on that I didn't like that much. So yeah, I think a six is good. I would say that I think I prefer Taleb's work, but I do think that this is like a valuable addition. And if you're interested in this kind of stuff, I would say this is a good read. Yeah, definitely. I think it does give you a bit more. And the same with so meditation or something, it's like, where it just tries to give you like that, that sort of that headspace before you jump into your emotions or something. It's got that sort of, okay, I've suddenly had this result or this new thing that's updated my model of what my next prediction is. But actually, what was my prediction beforehand and like what's the overall picture as opposed to like just my sudden gut feeling? So I think it just gives you that little gap. I think it has been the best book to give me that out of all of them, perhaps. That was nice. But maybe this conversation held, held more. Who knows? But yeah, did, what did you... I don't know, sorry to be asking about your company, but did you did you guys discuss this that much yet or have you not reached the discussion point? Yeah, we did. But it was, yeah, I mean, a pretty specific, like topic-specific discussion, like how we can apply this more in our team and stuff like that. And I could probably update you in a couple of months to see, you know, because, yeah, there's not a lot of data yet and it would be starting to overfit already. So let's avoid that. Good. I hope you enjoyed this, listener. If you did, let us know. And if you enjoyed our books on racism, which we did like three years ago or something, the next book we're reading is a book called No Offense But, which is kind of in the same line. Yeah, quality and understanding different things. Yeah, I've had, I'm having lots of opinions on this one already. <laughs> All so right, it should forward. be a good one. Good. All right. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, listener. And we look forward to speaking with you in the next episode. Ciao. Ciao.